1: In addition to my JD and certification, I also hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I am both a master of the laws of taxation law and a master of the laws of intellectual property law. Now, because of my education, my training, my experiences, my life's observations, and most importantly, my lifelong interest in business and money and finance, and the creation preservation and transfer of wealth within families and communities, including tribal communities, and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. Yes, bankruptcy law, because as I've shared with you before, it intersects with just about every other area of law that you can imagine. I also practice the related fields in my overall financial practice, including debt wealth management, estates and trusts, insurance, real estate, and of course, taxation law. Now, with these areas of law as my reference points, that is to say, as they relate to the personal, familial, community, and small business aspects of finance, I've spent the greater part of the last nearly 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence, and the economic autonomy of women and people and communities of color, including indigenous communities. And because I was born into a military family, actually born in a military hospital while my dad was on deployment and I grew up as a military brat and I always will be one. And, you know, I also helped create another one with my former spouse who was also in the military. As such, I have firsthand knowledge of just how hard it can be sometimes financially and economically for our citizen soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and marines and their families in our sometimes less than patriotic capital based economic system. This especially so after these individuals and their families separate from the service. As such, I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. You know, I'd love to share with you that I was raised by a dad who gave back to this country big time via his service in the military, who also informed me that I too had a duty to give back to my community, to our society as a whole, and to the universe through some form of, of, you know, service via my own choosing in return for the great gifts and innumerable blessings that God has given me. However, he admonished me that under no circumstances should I become a soldier, sailor, or air, air man or woman <laughs> or a Marine because I was just too inquisitive. I asked way too many questions and I was way too stubborn to let a matter go if I didn't get a satisfactory answer to my query. Traits that he found charming and quaint, but he believed would get me into deep trouble if I were to act out on my <laughs> my inquiries, my, uh, my inquisitiveness, if I was in a uniform. And, you know, acted that way to my superiors. So he suggested that instead of joining the ROTC while I was in high school, like so many of my classmates did, he urged me instead to focus on my academics. And upon graduation, if I still wanted to serve the military of this great country, I should apply for a job as a Department of Defense civilian, which I did. And you know, I will forever be grateful to my dad for this one little piece of advice out of many that he gave me because working for the Army as a civilian in my teens, my late teens and my early 20s opened up so many opportunities that I still reap the benefits of till this very day, including the fact that one of my subsequent employers paid completely and fully for my education as a computer systems engineer. And on top of having a great father committed to helping steer me in the right direction as I was preparing to leave his nest, I had the great fortune to both know and spend a lot of time with and actually became great friends with both my maternal and paternal grandmothers, both of whom survived the four great economic challenges of the last century, the 20th century. That is to say the Great Depression, World War II, and the systemic racism and misogyny that they had to live through that continues to and through today. That I must tell you, I take Taylor Swift's advice and shake it off by keeping my eye on the prize. And as these wonderful women helped raise me and always loved me and shared with me the stories of their great Uh, grandparents who loved and raised them in the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow South, lessons that instilled in me today the requirement that all black women especially must have the courage to inculcate. And it is out of my great love and respect for these wonderful women who are always with me in spirit, Urging me on to do the right thing along with my late father. That when the situation is right, through my current chosen form of service, practicing and also speaking and writing about the law, I am sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of women and seniors and the disabled who find themselves more and more the targets of uh, the and victims, unfortunately, of some of the most pernicious forms of disabled adult and elder financial abuse that you can imagine that's running rampant in our society today. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money, and more probably than not these days, an insufficient amount thereof. And your overall finances and what you may need to consider to protect or reclaim or rehabilitate your or your families or your small businesses, financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational forum. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show does not provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with at least an overall outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find the qualified professional help I sincerely believe you need if you're having a legal issue that intersects with your finances, including your assets, but especially your debt. So today I want to start a discussion about artificial intelligence, also known as AI. And I specifically want to focus on an offshoot known as generative AI, also known as gen AI and you know, these are things, these are concepts that we read about and hear about almost every day in the media. I'm making these series of presentations because so many of you out there in radio and podcast land have heard of Gen AI, but are not quite sure what it is, how it works, how it impacts us personally in our daily lives. This is especially the case for many in our historically black and brown communities where there is little, if any, access to broadband internet service, a key component needed for the full and ubiquitous deployment of Gen AI that, on the one hand, will help us have access to the tools, We need to educate our children and grandchildren if we live in a community with poor quality schools or help us access the systems that will allow us to update and continue our STEM related education and ultimately give us greater access to the science, technology, engineering, math and math related jobs of the future. And the future is now or for legal professionals like me who are able to continue serving my clients during COVID-19 shutdowns via my having access to my clients and to the court and even having trials via the Internet. So I want you to know about this because as we discussed on last week's show, because of the resilience and human of the human mind and spirit while facing adversity, um, specifically in this instance, the disruptions to uh, the sometimes decades old and even centuries old centralized practice of parties and witnesses coming to the courthouse uh, in order to gain access to the administration of justice, many courts as a result of these disruptions Um, inculcated new lessons and learned new things about how remote court with vital tools such as the internet and Zoom.gov provided not only a cost savings to the judicial branch, but it also for clients and advocates like me, which I believe in turn has and will continue to open up greater access to justice to low to middle -income income members of our society. However, on the other hand, while the constructive use of Gen AI are admirable, we must make sure that we, the people, are always in control of the technology and not the other way around. We will start by learning about Gen AI. And just as the Internet opened up greater access to courts for the general population, it is also laying the foundation for the creation of new tools that will help judges and lawyers like me make more fact-based and timely decisions that are well-grounded in prudent legal logic via the prudent safe use of generative AI that is governed and always controlled by ethical and wise human beings who are committed to furthering the best interests of the parties and our judicial systems as a whole. So when we come back, we'll dig deeper into generative AI by lifting the hood to see what it looks like, what is the inner workings of generative AI. But first, we'll take a short break and I'll see you on the other side.
2: Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead.
1: Welcome back to Selwyn's Law. As we continue our discussion on today's topic by taking a deeper dive into generative AI, also known as Gen AI, by lifting the hood on generative AI. So we can take a look at its interworkings, including what, number one, defining what it is, Number two, looking back on how it came to be. Number three, discussing how it's supposed to work. <laughs> number four, giving examples how it is trained. Uh, number five, listing some of its best use cases. Number six, identifying uh, its major risks. Number seven, illustrating how we can mitigate those risks. And then ultimately discussing how generative AI can assist members of our legal community, including judges and members of the bar, such as I, and legal educators in our joint responsibility to ethically serve society via our collective judicial system. So let's start at the beginning. What is generative AI? Well, generative AI refers to artificial intelligence systems that can generate new content after being trained on a data set, a database. These systems learn patterns, styles, and structures from the data they are trained on and then utilize this understanding to generate new, previously non-existing material. Now, this material could range from text, images, and music to code and synthetic media. Generative AI models, particularly in language ones that focus on language processing, are trained on large amounts of text so they can produce coherent, contextually relevant answers and contacts. That mimic human like understanding and writing capabilities. Now, their use currently in a variety of applications, including creating literary content, generating realistic dialogues, assisting with coding, and more. The technology behind generative AI, such as GPT, also known as Generative Pre Trained Transformer has made significant strides in recent years, leading to more sophisticated and nuanced AI capabilities. So let's have a a little bit of historical overview and context. Artificial intelligence, uh, as a recognized field, began in the mid-20th century, when the term itself was, was coined in 1956 during a conference at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. This historical event known as the Dartmouth Summer Research Project on Artificial Intelligence was led by John McCarthy, Marvin Minsky, Nathaniel Rochester, and Claude Shannon, who are considered the founding fathers, the founding figures of AI. Now, this marked the beginning of AI as an academic discipline. However, the concept of creating intelligent machines and automated data dates back to ancient civilizations via their myths and legends about mechanical men and thinking machines that were found as, you know, on the baseline of many of our cultures throughout the world. The years following the Dartmouth Conference saw significant achievements in AI, such as the development of neural networks, the creation of the first AI programs like the Logic Theorists and ELIZA, and it established the AI labs at MIT, Sanford University, and other universities. Now, FYI, A neural network in the context of artificial intelligence is a computational model designed to simulate the way the human brain processes information. It is composed of a large number of interconnected elements called neurons, which work in unison to solve a specific problem. Neuron networks are the foundational components of learning machines and are particularly powerful in pattern recognition, which is an integral part of many AI tasks. Now, over the decades, there have been cycles of advancement and stagnation, often referred to as AI booms and AI winters, as the field has contended with technical challenges and fluctuating investments from the investment community. Nonetheless, from the latter part of the 20th 20th century into this century, AI has made substantial progress, especially with the availability of large amounts of data and increased computational power, uh, bringing us to today's sophisticated and diverse applications, AI applications. So, When did generative AI first come on the scene? Now, the concept of generative AI has been evolving over several decades with its root in the broader field of artificial intelligence, the emergence of specific generative models that we recognize today, such as generative adversarial networks, or GANs, gains, and variational auto-encoders began to gain significant traction in uh, 2010. Now, FYI, generative uh, adversarial networks are composed of two of the neural networks that I talked about earlier, in addition to um, to the first one, there's two, and one of them is designated as the generator, and the other one is designated as the discriminator and which are trained simultaneously through a competitive process that pits new data against fake data until the fake data is vanquished by the real data and the fake data withdraws from the competition. Kind of sounds like a lawsuit to me. (laughs) And FYI, a variational anti-coder is a probabilistic spin on a traditional anti-coder a type of neural network, again, neural networks, these are like um, facsimiles of the process that brains go through. So it's a type of neural network used to learn uh, efficient representation of data called encoding. And these VAEs are designed not only to reconstruct this input data, but also ensure that it the learned representation have certain desirable properties allowing it to generate new data. So generative adversarial networks, for instance, were introduced by Ian Goodfellow and his colleagues in a paper that they published in 2014. Now, this innovation sparked a wave of research and development in generative models capable of creating realistic images, videos, and other data. Now, the term language model, the transformer model, uh, which is fundamental to many of today's language-based generative AI systems, including GPT, and I know you've heard that before, or generative pre-trained transformer was introduced in a paper by um, by a bunch of eggheads <laughs> in 2017. The first version of OpenAI's generative pre-trained transformer, transformer, or GPT, was released in 2018, followed by GPT-2 in 2019, and then GPT-3 in 2020. Since then, there's been a rapid advancement in the capabilities of artificial and generative AI models for text generation. That's where the focus is, for the most part having the ability to use large databases uh to generate new text that's based on learned um um knowledge uh basically training the um ai model the way one would train one's child uh to be able to think and listen think understand and then regurgitate what was trained, but by connecting the dots, open up um, vistas of new information or new configurations, which is also the problem of AI, uh, because sometimes it will produce um, new information that is not based on anything other than imagination and can lead one to believe that AI is hallucinating and producing bad information. So because we're running out of time, um, when we get together next time, we'll continue our discussion on what I consider to be one of the most fascinating topics uh, in the marketplace today, including how AI is trained. Again, as we're out of time, we're going to leave it there for now, but as always in closing here on Selman's Law, we always want to stay on the right side of the law, including having an open mind about using generative AI in the legal profession, as long as and only if the inputs to and the outputs from generative AI are controlled by ethical and wise human beings who put society first, the good of society first. So, Till next time, take care. Please take care. Bye for now.
2: Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the Law Office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the Law Office of Selwyn Whitehead.